Anderson 3D Roundtable. Today's focus is, is drug screening in 3D ready for automation? I'm Sue Grepper, editor for New Frontiers in 3D and scientific ambassador for Inspira. We're excited to have so many researchers joining in today and we encourage you to ask questions as you think of them and we will try to address them at the end of the roundtable discussion. Now, before we jump into the roundtable discussion, I'd like to mention New Frontiers in 3D's mission. Um, the mission is to facilitate discussions about transformative 3D in vitro cell technologies among leaders and innovators in the field of pharmaceutical drug discovery. In previous years, we held intensive in-person one-day meetings around different applications for emerging 3D in vitro technologies. This includes one held at John Hopkins in 2016 and one at MIT in 2019. Since the start of COVID, uh, we obviously shifted gears to digital events, including Visionary Speak KOL roundtable series, such as the one today. Um, I also urge you to check out our online in vitro 3D newsletter, which comes out every once in a while, but you can quickly uh, scan that if you have interest or reach out to us afterwards and we can get you signed up to receive this uh, newsletter. So quickly, I'll describe today's roundtable agenda. First, I will introduce our panelists, then I will pass the mic to these panelists for a panelist discussion, which will aim to conclude around 40 minutes past the hour. This will allow another 20 minutes or so for answering questions you've submitted from the audience. Um, then we'll wrap up today's event with some closing remarks by the top of the hour. So with that, I am now excited to introduce our three distinguished panelists, which come from quite different backgrounds and expertise. First, I would like to introduce Dr. Terry Reese Rist, um, Senior Product Manager in the Cell Health Division of Promega Corporation. Terry actually started the cell biology program at Promega Corporation back in 1990. He is involved in outreach educational training activities, including validating assay systems applied to 3D cell culture models. He is also editor of the in vitro cell-based assay section of the assay guidance manual, which is hosted by NCATS at NIH. Next, I would like to introduce Dr. Tim Spicer, Senior Scientific Director in the Department of Molecular Medicine at Scripps Research. Tim has had more than 30 years of experience in drug discovery, including 10 years at Bristol-Myers Squibb. In his current role at Scripps Research, he oversees high throughput screening assay development and related efforts. Tim has authored more than 125 drug discovery related publications and is an inventor of three patents. Last, but certainly not least, I would like to introduce Jan Lichtenberg, CEO and co-founder of Inspiro. Jan co-founded Inspiro 12 years ago in 2009 and grew the company to become the largest biotech specialized in 3D culture technologies for discovery and safety. Before Inspiro, Jan managed a research group at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, otherwise known to most of us as ETH. He is also a board member of the Society of Laboratory Science and Screening. So now let's move to the panelist discussion. These are the key topics which will be discussed today, um, if we have time, uh, including what are the advantages of moving to phenotypic screens in 3D? How do you choose the right 3D modality in supporting cells for your research? How do you select assays from 3D models that automate well and deliver consistent results? Um, there will also be some automated 3D uh, cell-based assay use cases uh, in the drug R&D process, safety versus discovery. And lastly, if we have time, what are the key hurdles and how do we overcome them? 
So with that, I will now pass it over to Jan to start the discussion around the first topic. What are the advantages of moving to phenotypic screens in 3D? Great, uh, Sue, thanks a lot for the introduction. Uh, welcome to the panelists and welcome to the attendees to this roundtable. Um, so a while ago, uh, Terry and Tim and I, we, we discussed that uh, this would be an interesting topic to really have a conversation about. I, I think in the past uh, 18 months, we had a lot of webinars which were kind of unidirectional. Somebody was presenting, the rest was listening. And uh, what we want to do with uh, these uh, roundtables is to reintroduce a certain scientific debate uh, on, on a specific topic where we might have different opinions as well that we can share and that we can discuss, because this is something that we've lost a little bit over the last 18 months. Um, so Terry, Tim and I, we, I think we've witnessed and we've partaken in the, in the revolution of moving 3D cell culture technologies into pharmaceutical and biotechnological research over the past, past decade. Uh, I think starting with very experimental techniques, of course, 3D cell culture has been around for 30 years, 30, 40 years, uh, um, coming out of cancer research, out of um, uh, basic biological research to understand human tissue and animal tissue in a better way. But I think it's especially over the last 10 years uh, that we've seen a true uh, growth of 3D cell culture applications. We've seen the introduction of um, automation compatible solutions of scaled up solutions from 96 to 384 and even 1536 well systems. And I think that um, uh, triggered the discussion today. Are we ready to screen in 3D or is this still a more, let's say scientific solution that can help us in uh, in, in uh, basic research to understand the biology better. And uh, Terry has of course covered that a lot from an assay perspective, which is, is very important to read uh, out what uh, changes, phenotypic changes we have in the tissues. From Insphere, we've looked at this from a tissue engineering perspective. How can we recapitulate diseased and healthy tissue in such a scalable solution in, um, in a, uh, in a automation-compatible format? Um, but it's, it's Tim at, at Scripps who I think has the, the best experience in terms of taking this technology to really screening infrastructure and running uh, large sets of compounds and large sets of data points uh, in 3D models. And so I thought it would be good if, if Tim, you could give us a bit of an overview. When did you guys start at Scripps? How did you start? What was the motivation to move from 2D to 3D? Uh, what did you decide in terms of application fields to, to deploy this to? And maybe you can take us on that journey and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Thanks a lot. So yeah, so this is just my perspective in, in moving 3D and more physiologically relevant models towards screening and, and early drug discovery. And mostly uh, we're focused on small molecule discovery, in this case, around cancer. So um, the goal of, of uh, most of my career actually has been to enhance automation, to advance the development of tools that will allow us to do things better, bigger, better, faster, more cost effective. And then of course, I want to marry that with the biology that's more appropriate for the disease that we're trying to solve. Um, so I'd say a, a good perspective on this. And then as you said, quite rightly, Jan, it's been around for quite a number of years. 3D has been around for decades. Um, and I think now it's just becoming more mainstream because of some of the tools and really 
quite frankly, the consumables are more available and they're more available and they're very fast and efficient and in the densities that they allow us to, to screen at. As you mentioned before, you can go 96, 384, 15, 36 even. So um, in our lab here at Scripps Research in Florida, we screen everything in 1536. At the time when I engaged in 3D research, it was really only available at 96 and maybe 384 at that time. Um, and this is going back to about 2018, okay? Um, and that's when uh, really multiple vendors started participating in providing plasticware and high density plate formats that allowed us to move very, very quickly uh, into spheroid or organoid related research. Um, so these are cell repellent plastic wares, okay? Uh, Corning makes the microcavity geometry plate. Uh, you have Griner that makes the M3D biology uh, compatible plates. Uh, and then there's also nano shuttle associated. Um, and again, the focus was on cancer. The 2D versus 3D part was very important, right? Because how do we know we're doing things properly in high throughput screening if we don't do the head-to-head -head comparison? So working very closely with a renowned physician at Cold Springs Harbor, David Tubison, um, we started ascertaining primary pancreas tumor cells. Okay, these had known mutations and they were genotyped and phenotyped in that sense. And we put those into play, multiple, uh, literally a, a dozen or more into 1536 well 3D formats and also compared them side by side in 2D formats for drug screening against an approved drug panel of about 3,300 compounds, 3,300 drugs. These are drugs available in the FDA, uh, US, uh, Canada, and Japan. Ultimately, the success was very, very high. Um, the back end of that effort, and this was funded by the NIH, by the way, is an R33I MAT initiative. Uh, so it was an Innovative Molecular Analysis Technologies grant that was funded. Uh, for three years. Um, the back end of that was to screen a very large collection against the primary pancreas organoids uh, in 3D. And so we did that against 150,000 plus small molecules. And quite frankly, I'm about to publish on that in the SLAS Discoveries uh, uh, Journal. So yeah, I'll, I'll stop there and, uh, and let maybe Terry join in, uh, ask questions, whatever. Yeah, I can make some uh, comments or additions. Um, still, I think one of the most common assays that's done is simply by measuring the viable cell number at the end of the experiment. Uh, you know, regardless of the type of cell-based assay you do, uh, it's valuable to know that number that, you know, how many cells you actually have because that can, you know, change uh, through the course of the experiment. And one of the things that sort of led us to get more involved with this is, um, one of the more popular assays is simply to measure ATP. And we found early on that, you know, very large 3D structures, there were some challenges and in some cases in simply lysing all of the cells or, you know, getting the reagents to penetrate. And it led us to some uh, experiments or some efforts to sort of optimize different assay chemistries to make sure that we we're, you know, lysing all of those cells. And we looked at different strategies. You know, one is simply to, you know, add more detergent uh, to create a better lytic solution. Uh, another option for measuring items or measuring markers that are not uh, amenable to having more detergent is simply to change the protocol. You know, more time in the presence of, of lysis solution, for instance, if you wanna measure something like caspase activity for apoptosis that may be, um, you know, not, not as, um, stable to detergent reagents. 
So much of, of my effort in this area is simply to create those homogeneous assays that enable automation at, at a high throughput level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and in fact, the research that I was just describing was using the 3D cell titer glow. And frankly, we did a head to head comparison with the 2D versions. Uh, obviously, we did the 2D format with normal cell titer glow, I guess you might call it or standard. Um, ultimately found some interesting things, which kind of uh, point to what you, you said, Terry, we, we literally saw when we had a 3D cell titer glow, we had a Verizon signal over about an hour's time, and then it slowly decayed as, as you would expect, to, you know, based upon a half-life, which I think was all about that cell penetration and, and the ability of reagents to get into uh, spheroids. And we, we published on that as well. Um, so yeah, they've been extremely beneficial and fast and effective for doing large-scale phenotypic screening in 3D. There are a lot of yeah. other approaches, so yeah. Some, some of the details sort of behind the scenes are that, you know, the assay chemistry is also slightly different. You have to keep in mind when you're doing a glow type of an assay using luciferase, you're really looking at the rate of the luciferase enzyme. So changes in the assay chemistry will, you know, affect the rate of, uh, you know, glow or the disappearance of the glow signal over time. Mm -hmm. So that, that's not too surprising. I think the, the optimization of assay chemistry, I think is, is probably one of the, at least in the early days of 3D cultures or the topics that was a bit underestimated because, you know, especially with, with kits for assays being available. And I think Promega is probably one of the companies that, that kind of contributed to that. I think on the one hand, there's a lot of convenience that comes with the kits, but at the same time, there's also, let's say a, a loss of know-how how these kits work and what the chemistry is actually doing. And I think that can be, uh, can be problematic if you then move from 2D to 3D and you don't really have a good understanding on how the assays work. Uh, especially I think when it comes to multiplexing assays, uh, 3D cell-based models are a bit more tricky to make, I would say. Uh, so in that sense, they are regarded to be more expensive. And there is a clear interest to have more information out of these tissues. Um, how do you deal with that at, at Promega Terry in terms of, you know, helping to make this transition from 2D to 3D? And then also what would be your recommendation when it comes to multiplex um, to have orthogonal readouts so that you yeah. get more out of each data point? Definitely, there's a lot of things to, to consider if you wanna to attempt to multiplex. Um, and it's not just in uh, plate reader types of assays, it's also in assays that use imaging. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the key things that you can do, for instance, is simply by the use of a, a, a DNA binding dye that will only stain the dead cells, you can add that dye to a culture and record the accumulation of dead cells over time. And then after you record that value, you can use those samples you know, to run any other type of an assay. And that includes imaging. Uh, so you can you know, image a fluorescent DNA stain um, on, on a 3D structure. And by the way, that, that there's all the considerations you have with a lytic assay are also something you need to consider for an imaging assay. You know, does the, the fluorophore penetrate all the way to the middle? And if it does penetrate all the way to the middle, you know, will the signal be quenched or, or scattered uh, just by the mass of tissue before it reaches the detector. Uh, 
So those are all things that need to be considered when you're choosing that assay or choosing the model system. And I always try to tell people, you know, when you're, when you're choosing the model system, it consists of not only the culture system, but also the assay that you're going to apply to it or assays mm -hmm. uh, if you're going to do multiplexing. Because multiplexing can give you uh, a huge statistical advantage as well. You know, you're much better off recording more than one event from a single well compared to trying to, you know, reproduce that in a separate plate. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, we are um, running a couple of complex assays and, and there was a question from the audience about what other assay um, technologies are there, right? So I think one of the interests that we have, especially when we deal with metabolic diseases like type two diabetes or, or NASH is that we, um, try to, to use assays that are familiar to our partners that work on the clinical side of things. Uh, for liver, for instance, this could be liver enzymes, ALT, AST, or one of the key assays for eyelid research is glucose-stimulated insulin secretion, which in itself is a really complex assay because it's not a, a, a single shot measurement, but you have to stress the tissue using different glucose concentrations and then measure the insulin output that, that comes from the system. And so these can be quite, quite lengthy processes. And I think so far, nobody has yet tried them to use those kind of assays in, 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 a, in a screening setup. In terms of functional biochemical assays or uh, life uh, live data assays and imaging. Uh, Tim, what's what's your take on this? What what are you preferring? Well, it's always a, a bias on time, right? And the, and the compendium of the tools that you have available to do a proper job in terms of uh, of the three D biology. So, you know, there's always three key pieces of automation that you need in order to do any biological reaction, whether it's uh, functional uh, cell based uh, live data assay or or even a biochemical assay, you always have to have a bulk reagent dispenser and compound transfer and then the reader. And the reader plays a very key role in 3D, right? Especially when you're thinking about imaging. So uh, it's fairly inexpensive and easy to do luminescence, right? Um, but it's much more challenging when you're starting to add multiple dyes and starting to look at multiple planes mm -hmm. and different types of cell-based uh, organoids or spheroids, right? So. To me, um, I like to use what I think is the most appropriate tool we can that gives us the efficiency to screen uh, as many molecules as needed. So uh, sort of take an unbiased approach on how to do that, uh, but certainly have to build in all those factors I just mentioned. So, uh, so yeah, we've done a bit of both. I would say most mm -hmm. of our focus on large-scale screening is around luminescence and phenotypic assays. And then we deconvolve on the backside with mode of action or on-target initiatives where we apply chemistry, uh, chemistries and, and sort of things around chemical biology where you use these tagged probes, right? Diazine ring uh, tagged probes that you can basically UV link to your protein of interest on the backside. So thinking about the front end, get through the phenotypic approach very, very quickly, but then the back end, you have to apply some pretty rigorous chemistry mm -hmm. and, and pull down those targets if if possible. And of course, you know, if you really nail a new target, which is very, very interesting in any kind of cancer biology, pancreas or otherwise, uh, then you're going to have to put it in animals and you're going to have to knock out certain genes and things like mm -hmm. that. So then you pull in all the CRISPR technologies and other fun tools that, that you need. So yeah, um, it's very exciting. You know, I always think that any new technology is fun and I like to spend a lot of time and energy in that, but it also creates new hurdles, right? So readers have to catch up with what we want to do. 
Um, not for nothing, there's some very good readers out there, molecular devices and also the, uh, the Phoenix Opera. Uh, quite amazing, uh, quite frankly, at doing 3D. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other great ones too. I don't mean to mm -hmm. single people out, but. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's this convergence of, um, as you said, 3D cell culture technologies, consumables, assay-ready models, and so on that came up over the last 10 years, but also then on the other hand, the readouts both in terms of chemistry, but also physical technology instruments that caught up so quickly. Um, and I, I think it's this, this combination of the two that really creates um, uh, fantastic opportunities to, um, to, to leverage these, these systems. Uh, we, we talked about um, penetration as one of the concerns when assays need to be adapted um, from 2D to 3D, but penetration of course also affects uh, the drugs on the test itself. You mentioned, Tim, that you work primarily with small molecules in, in, in libraries, so probably penetration is less of a, of a concern. Uh, I'm not sure how long you incubate, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. And then second part of the question would be, um, are you working with larger molecules as well with biologicals? Uh, what's, what's your take on that? Yeah, so um, I think in terms of small molecule penetration, and I've thought about this a lot, right? Because I've stood up and talked about it at other venues where we'll show off a differential result with things like disulfiram, a very simple molecule, if you will, antabuse is, is what its drug name is. And its effect in 3D on pancreas cancers versus 2D is quite different. Tramatinib is amazingly different, like three orders of magnitude different sensitivity in 3D over 2D, right? So you can imagine that if you're screening, like I like to do, you might miss molecules in 2D that you would find only in 3D, which is, which is kind of the proponent of why we're doing these things. We wanna be more physiologically relevant. So in looking at the drug results and then even large scale screening initiatives and what the hits came out to be in 2D versus 3D, um, we did a lipophilicity score and, and really looking at that versus what we think would be more penetrable, more soluble, more easy to get into the cells. And quite frankly, we could not make a good correlation with that. So I was, I'm still left a little bit in the dark on how to solve that or answer that question when it's when it comes up. But you can imagine that there are some obvious, you know, uh, red herrings that would just not penetrate or would penetrate better in, in 2D. Um, so there's that incubation time wise. Uh, so we're pretty fortunate to have uh, really specialized plates that are are particularly vended for the Clipsis GNF platform. So they're OEM style plates generated from, from a number of vendors. They're flat on the surface, the top surface. So there's no alphanumeric labeling. And then we use a very uh, unique, uh, heavy stainless steel lid that has a nice gasket around it that sits right down on top of the plate. So you can imagine it's sandwiching that gasket between heavy metal on top of the plastic 1536 well plate. Typical volumes is five microliter assays and, and most of our phenotypic approaches that I was talking about. And we can get out to about 96 hours with those in our incubators without suffering uh, edge effects to the degree where I'm starting to think we have uh, issues. Uh, beyond 96 hours, uh, I'd say you're asking for trouble in a big way. Uh, and then you can apply other things, okay, which are non-standard on our system. So we tend to avoid it if we can. But you can use, you know, microclimb lids that are provided by LabSite. Those work very, very well. And you can push things further out if need be. Uh, as Terry mentioned earlier, nicely, you know, we try to keep everything very homogeneous. So I avoid uh, 
aspirating and adding back media. So the feeding steps would add on, you know, another step that's not very homogeneous and can be costly, can introduce contamination if you're not careful, things like that. So uh, we tend not to do that very often here, uh, although we can, we're enabled to do it if need be. Um, and I know there's some things around that that could be important for certain biologies to take out, you know, 30 days or so. That, that, that's something I would probably call a much lower non-standard uh, HTS asset. But certainly cool biology can be done the longer you take it out. Mm -hmm. well, right. Actually, let me make a comment on aspirating. One of the things uh, to keep in mind is uh, there can be valuable information in what comes out of the cells and is secreted mm -hmm. or released into the medium that will you know, be valuable to capture if you want to do a brief aspiration step. And you can actually do that as a multiplexing approach to you know, record those data prior to applying some other assay onto the cells. And I noticed a little uh, chat window that came up that uh, raised the issue about extracellular matrix or you know, how that affects. And you can imagine that if you have a hydrogel, that will also affect the ability of small molecules or larger molecules to penetrate you know, through that matrix before it even reaches uh, the 3D cell structure. So that's something you know to keep in mind, and also not just the the physical limits of diffusion, but also there's the possibility of ionic interactions between the components of the hydrogel and the molecules that you're trying to measure. So those things can somewhat complicate the issue. I think there's uh, in general a movement away from the biologically. Uh, sort of extracted hydrogels, like things like matrigel, to move more toward the chemically defined approach where you can take uh, a, a PEG molecule, for instance, and put you know, specific amino acid sequences on the ends of those monomers to you know, mimic uh, you know, collagen or laminin or something like that. And I think that will help sort of in defining the assay system a little better than just uh, using the animal-derived matrix materials. Harry, do you have any experience of interference between bioartificial matrices and, and hydrogels with the assay chemistry um, that, that you guys are using, or is this kind of transparent? Uh, I, I don't think we have any specific examples of uh, chemical interference or binding, uh, but just in general, it may take a little longer uh, for like a lytic step to occur mm -hmm. if you're simply adding, uh, you know, a, a lytic reagent on top of uh, the sample, uh, you know, oftentimes you can accelerate that with with mixing or plate shaking, um, but I, I don't have specific examples of interferences. But you can imagine, you know, if you have a library of you know several thousand or hundred thousand compounds, there's there's bound to be things in there that will interact, you know, with with hydrogel components. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can, I can add to that a little bit. So um, we did do a head-to-head -head comparison. So the Tuvasin lab. Um, has sort of a transformative approach to doing 3D and, and then taking it into animals. Um, but they're also uh, initially anyways, using models that had major gel, okay? Um, you know, the rounded dome versions of creating organoids uh, with their primary pancreas cancer cells. Um, of course, we didn't do that, right? I, I use matrix-free matrix -free approach with the plates and I mentioned before, but really what was interesting is on the back end of finding the hits, the leads, if you will, uh, from the screening that I described, uh, we tested head-to-head -head in our 3D models, and he tested the same molecules in his lab 
uh, again, against a dozen or more different pancreas cancer cell types. And uh, they did that in Matrigrel format. And frankly, we saw no diminishment in, in the efficacy of the compounds. Now we're talking about maybe a series of five different analogs, um, but clearly uh, no diminishment. And in fact, an improvement in the overall IC50, uh, which in this case is low nanomolar. So we're pretty happy with the outcome of the, the hits and the leads that we derive from this. Mm -hmm. So that's a head to head there. I think what, what is interesting to me and also transformative that maybe you have a play on Jan or, or Terry is, you know, the medias that we use now, right? That some of those things with the wind factors and other things that are, are typically difficult to, to make or produce in your own lab, it's much more simplified now. I, I feel like we're in a new era with the media. You can either buy them prefabbed from somebody, prefabricated from somebody, or you, you can just use more traditional medias, which has changed the game quite considerably as well. So I'm not sure what you're using for your models. Um, maybe we can yeah, well, that's that, that's a great question, and I, I think what the role of the media, I think, is has clearly grown um, a lot with with uh, phenotypic three D models, um, also because of the extended uh, use periods for these for these models, right? So you said ninety six hours is what you typically use. We run quite a a number of assays for 10 days, 14 days, even 21 days, right? If it comes to infectious diseases, if you look uh, for a, a parasite in the liver or something like that, we, we have uh, partners that run assays for 45 or 50 days. And of course, uh, evaporation is an issue, but the right medium selection is really is really key here. And we've optimized media for these different um, different applications. So we have media that, for instance, allow to retain functionality in the phenotype for a long time, but might have higher serum concentrations. So this could be a concern when you use those for drug safety work, because you might see uh, masking of, of your molecule of interest uh, with, with these high serum concentrations. And so we also have serum-free chemically defined media uh, for, let's say, applications for up to 14 days. But after that, we see a considerable um, uh, change in the phenotype of, of, the, of the model. And so uh, selecting um, the right medium here, I think, is, is key. For aggregation of the tissues, again, we use a different formulation because we want to make sure that we have very robust tissue formation between different donors. And so optimizing, optimizing those um, has been, I think, a, a substantial part of our R&D work when we start to dive into a new application and, and, and into a new model. How much do you Just follow on to, sorry, Terry, go ahead. I was just gonna make one comment on uh, the medium formulation. And, you know, as simple as, you know, a four day or 96 hour experiment, uh, it's important to characterize the media and monitor things like the glucose content, because mm -hmm. that can be somewhat invisible uh, to most people. And simply to be able to measure that over time is important because if you have cells that are starved for energy, they may respond differently to a test compound compared to mm -hmm. others. And there are, um, you know, sensitive luminescent assays available to monitor those things that, that you know, the sensitivity of, you know, a single spheroid per well. Mm -hmm. But again, and some people, you know, they'll, they'll make a glucose measurement and see a decrease. And in order to counteract that sort of deficit, they may choose a high glucose medium, which would be 
a step toward something that's not physiological. You have cells at in least for a good portion of the of the population. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good point. Uh, you know, considering especially cancers being you know glucose uh, fiends, if you will. <laughs> so yeah. paying attention to redox is a pretty big important play too. Um, but a question for Jan on his uh, models that you take out for weeks, even um, that's pretty cool. Uh, how much do you follow along with genetic drift on that and thinking mm -hmm. more around cancer and tumor uh, uh, oncogenes, things like that? Yeah. For cancer, I can't really say because we haven't uh, looked at, at cancer models uh, in terms of, of gene expression over time, but we've done it quite uh, quite extensively for the liver and we've seen that uh, first of all we we see a substantial upregulation of liver specific uh, genes compared to the 2d models this is why we do this whole exercise right and uh, and that we also retain this over i think we we did this study over 35 days together with karolinska institute in sweden and so that was that was really promising. But of course, the liver model is very different from a tumor model because it's not proliferating, right? And uh, the tumor models, uh, we're typically using co-cultures of cancer cells and, and tumor-associated fibroblasts. Uh, the cancer cells are proliferating. The fibroblasts are typically contact-inhibited and don't proliferate. So you already have a change in this uh, in this. Um, uh, in the ratio between the cells, then you have the impact of the endogenous extracellular matrix that this tissue is, uh, is, is providing or generating uh, as the tissue grows. You change the gradients uh, that you have in the system, right? You uh, might see an onset of, of hypoxia in the core of the tissue, maybe even necrosis if you run this for a longer time. Um, so I would clearly say while the liver is a much more functional tissue in a way, uh, tumors, um, because of the dynamic nature of this model, will definitely show changes in, uh, in gene expression over time. Yeah, no, I, get, I get that one a lot. You know, what is the genetic drift, or you know, how much uh, effect do you have in culture over time? Mm -hmm. Generally, it, it appears, uh, you know, phenotypically for sure, and, and drug response um, that there's very little effect over time with with the pancreas cancers that I've been working with mostly. Um, but yeah, I think it's still an unanswered question as well. So you probably mm -hmm. can debate about that pretty easily. Um, I can make a, another comment about uh, variability, so to speak. And even though your, you know, your cells may have little genetic drift, you know, through the course of the experiment, uh, one of the things that is often overlooked is treating of the cells that are used to set up the assay. And if you don't have a, a in-place standard operating procedure for handling the cells that are used to set up an assay, you know, you can end up with phenotypic drift that occurs or, over a period of, you know, weeks or, or months, depending on how long you had those cells in culture prior to using it to set up an assay. Mm -hmm. I think that's, uh, that opens a good question in terms of the source material that we're using, especially when we we think of larger screening campaigns, we also need more, more cells, of course. Um, Tim, how much are you working with primary material with, with even maybe patient uh, biopsies? How much do you do with, with cell lines, with iPSCs? Yeah, so quite a bit, actually. Our focus is, is shifted from pancreas tumors, uh, which are hard to get hold of a lot of cells, to be quite frank. Usually it's a fine needle aspirate. 
Um, so we were pretty heavily reliant on the Fubicin lab to hand off uh, really 2D formatted pancreas cells and scale that way, uh, and then rebastardize them back into 3D, if you will, for the large scale screening. But nowadays we get tumors directly from Boca Raton uh, Regional Hospital, uh, where we work with neurosurgeons down there to deliver uh, really tissues directly on the back end of their surgical resections for glioblastoma. And then we culture those in our lab and we've been screening those for drug response against the NCI oncologic set uh, as full concentration response curve. So uh, literally within a matter of a few weeks uh, to maybe a couple of months, we're at the point where we have, and we keep them always in 3D. Uh, we never bastardize them into 2D in this case. Um, we have enough cells to go ahead and screen each of the 140 some odd oncologic drugs as full uh, concentration response curves is 10.3 full serial dilutions and triplicate. And then we combine that with the exome data that comes off the back end of the uh, life sciences report. So we send out to a third party to get really the omics and the biomarker information. And we marry that into what we call a drug gene networking analysis that we did with Samina Boca at Georgetown. And she'll recommend uh, panels of drugs that should work or target the tumors better based upon their mutations and what we've seen with our own internal drug efficacy. We'll go back and test those in combination and look at synergy. Um, and it's been really quite phenomenal, the results that have come out the back end. Of course, now the transformation or the potential of that sounds pretty obvious. And I know a lot of people are doing predictive, what I would call uh, uh, medicine, if you will, or you know, precision medicine approaches. But to, to, to put that into humans uh, would be extremely relevant and powerful, but to, to yeah. translate it is not quite as simple as you think, right? So we're in that process of working closely with the physicians. Uh, we've now transferred it into animals. So those same tumors go from our lab into animals, and then we grow tumors in, in mice and test the same drug combinations that we tested in vitro in vivo. And so, yeah, there's a bit of a uh, path to get to humans. Uh, yeah. It's pretty exciting. Um, so yeah, I, I think so. it's a super exciting new frontier, right? To move this um, yeah, into personalized, patient-centric uh, medicine. I think that's that's definitely a big topic for the future. Great. I think we have a lot of questions and commentary. Go go ahead. I didn't want to uh, just just to make a comment on moving to the personalized medicine approach. Mm -hmm. There are some obvious challenges of, you know, having a the regulatory community <laughs> get involved there. Uh, it's not as easy to just simply run an experiment like you would do in a research lab and you know be able to provide that to, uh, you know, you, you can provide the information to the physician, but to make like a, a recommendation based decision. on a yeah. diagnostic is a, a completely different story. Yep, yeah, fully agreed, yeah. So we have a lot of questions, comments, uh, especially on the SSI, uh, maybe we open it up soon. Sure. So I have been looking at all these questions that are coming in. It's a lot of uh, questions, which is great. So one question that seems to be popping up a lot is technical. Um, one around evaporation effects, which I think um, Tim has touched on a little bit using microcline lids. But then also what I'm seeing again and again is how do you deal with spheroid loss um, due to liquid handling or you know just uh, robotics. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe Tim, you might have the most experience with this and maybe Jan has uh, insight as well because it really does depend on the plate you're using, I'm sure, right? It does, uh, it sort of boils down to the liquid handlers that you use for that bulk reagent dispensing. And so what I mean by that is, you know, let's just say on the order of a microliter to, if you're in 3D4, 30 microliters or 50 microliters, how do you transfer those spheroids without getting spheroid loss? And 
I think that's still one of the biggest challenges out there. There's a couple of uh, instruments that will do it right now. Yamaha has one, for example, um, that I think would work pretty well, but it's also pretty uh, unattainable for most of what I would say academic research labs. So um, I, you know, I'd love to say that we've have it worked out in our own lab right now. We've put some engineering into it, uh, trying to dispense spheroids as uniform dispenses and you don't necessarily need one per well. I'd be happy if I had 10, but it has to be a homogeneous number, right? Or else you mm -hmm. get variability that throws off your statistics and your rigor. So um, we've put we've put quite a bit of effort into that and we continue to do so. So I think it's an unmet need. If, if there's a place to put uh, a lot of effort and doing it in very high throughput, um, I think that's the place to do it. Um, so yeah, I, most of the time we're disaggregating cells and then putting them into wells that form mm -hmm. 3D afterwards, right? So there's still that step that I'd like to get away from. And, and Tim, you mentioned that you guys are trying to reduce the number of liquid handling steps to a maximum, right? So that, um, that uh, you run uh, assays as homogeneously as possible. But then on the other hand, for instance, we have sometimes assay protocols, as I mentioned before, that require a lot of steps, especially if we then not just keep the tissue, but we might also want to do clearing for imaging in the wells and we might to do whole mount staining and so on. So, you know, if you sum this up, we have dozens of steps where we do washing and redosing and, and, and reagent addition and so on. And, uh, and that's where, where we've, I think, spent the last 10 years on, on optimizing the plates that we use internally um, to make sure that we can extract as much liquid as possible. So 96, 97% without accidentally aspirating the tissue. We, we do this by creating a flat bottom, but a very small one, just one millimeter in diameter. And that creates a little liquid pocket in which the tissue sits. And, and so that, that is something that can run on an automated system, but also manual systems really quite well in 96 and 384 well, well plates. And we've used, we've used that internally for the biggest part of our time. And uh, we've just started to also make these plates available uh, directly through our website, because we see that there are quite a lot of people who struggle with this also when working with organoids and dispensing organoids in these systems. At the end of the day, you need a platform that allows you to maintain a single uh, spheroid organoid per well and then run repeated liquid handling steps without losing uh, these valuable uh, biospecimens. And I think that's where, where we have a key interest in. I think there is a liquid handling company that is working on kind of filtered tip approaches to prevent this more from, from an aspiration perspective, not so much from the plate perspective, but from the automation perspective. I don't remember which companies there were, company there was. Uh, but I think that that's also a valid approach. If you're if you're thinking about using matrix as well, uh, there's a number of other approaches. I know Formulatrix has pretty good uh, dispensers. Uh, you know, their mosquito dragonfly mm -hmm. uh, versions will work pretty well for those types of things for sure. Um, so, you know, it's not a one size fits all answer, right? Um, certainly, there's a number of uh, plate vendors out there now that are competing to a degree. Um, I know you have, I already mentioned Corning and, and Griner. Um, Corning actually makes multiple versions that you have the Euphlasia or Euphlasia, however you say that, uh, plates that have uh, basically microcavity geometries in a, in a matrix in a single well. So you'll get multiple steroids per well in its own little captured uh, 
uh, area. So that those those are interesting in, in certain capacities uh, if that's what your needs are. Okay. Yeah, I always have the question of uh, is it better to have a single sample of a spheroid or multiple replicates of a single sample or multiple spheroids per well? I think as, as long as they have the same size, doesn't really matter. <laughs> My, yeah. So there, there are spheroids are small, especially if you if you want to assure a proper oxygenation, and there are some endpoints, especially when you think about proteomics, but also some other omics, um, where a single spheroid just doesn't provide enough cellular material, and then you need more than one. Uh, so we achieve this by pooling, but of course there are solutions like uh, like Tim mentioned, also the Kugelmeier systems that allow you to create hundreds and thousands of tissues per, per well. For me, I think the important point is that we like to have them the same size uh, because there are approaches where you pool and then you kind of average and you have smaller and, and larger as far as organoids, but of course these are very different biological systems, right? You might have have um, hypoxic or even necrotic cores in one and then in others uh, they are totally oxygenated you have different penetration uh, dynamics of uh, of molecules into these tissues and personally I, I think it's very difficult to deconvolute these these many effects if if you have a highly variable size distribution okay, so just from a phenotypic point of view i think the um in general, the organoid approach, uh, you know, because the, the structures themselves are more heterogeneous, that's going to be more challenging to get reproducibility if you're using small samples. Mm -hmm. Agree. Okay, so uh, lots more questions here. Um, there's a few around other endpoints that could be used. So we touched a little bit on ATP, and obviously, cell titer glow is something we use quite often. Um, in our research, but um, one question about MTT. So obviously there's lots of variations of MTT, XTT, LMR blue, and so on. Um, this might be a question for Terry. Um, is this something that can be used for, for screening in 3D? Well, yeah, MTT can be used. However, the detection sensitivity is probably, you know, you have to have probably at least a thousand cells. Mm -hmm. So it is somewhat limited in sensitivity. You know, it measures uh, basically metabolic capacity of the cells or the ability of the cells to reduce the tetrazoleum into a formazan. Uh, same approach for MTT, XTT, MTS, uh, and even the rosazarin to resorufin type of conversion is all done by basically reducing capacity or NADH, NADPH in the cytoplasm to do that conversion. So yes, you can use it if your sample size is large enough but if we're using individual spheroids per well, you have to have something that's a little more sensitive. Okay. Um, here is another, this is more uh, physiological or psychological. Um, if you can improve on anything in the 3D space, what would it be? Perhaps we'll start with Tim on this one. <laughs> I, honestly, I think just uh, getting more, uh, well, I'd say there's, I already mentioned the, the dispenser technologies that I think we could use some improvements there. Um, but probably also QC of not only uh, reagents, but also the plastic wares. Okay. So making sure that every well is patterned the same way and meaning 
they have the same ULA capacity, they have the same performance. Um, so we spend a lot of time around doing that internally and using imaging technologies um, that are quite unique, uh, different than a high content reader uh, montage. We literally snap an image of a whole 1536 volt plate at once and look for the spheroids or organoids to be in each and every well. So there's a chicken in every pot, if you will. Uh, and then we move on from there because uh, some of these things are still pretty new. And I think there's a competitive advantage uh, for those vendors that make their plastic wares and reagents uh, highly valuable to, to researchers like myself. In, in other words, they're just plate and go and, and you're there, so. Okay, Terry, do you have any anything to add to that? What would you improve upon for 3D? Uh, I think just the reproducibility of uh, sample to sample and even day to day or week to week, uh, I think is something that sometimes is overlooked uh, by people. So just uh, having a standard operating procedure to, you know, to set up materials, uh, not only the, the plates, but the cells, the medium, to make sure you have consistency going into the experiment. Okay. And Jan, anything from you? I know you're holding- Going a bit in the same direction, I think kind of uh, more uh, guidelines in, in our community and how to, how to run certain procedures and how to document uh, certain things. I mean, I still see a lot of publications where you see uh, confocal sections uh, through a clear tissue, but you don't know where that section is in, in a specific tissue, right? And and that makes a big difference, right? Is it kind of what we call the equatorial plane slash through the middle, or is this more in the lower portion? Uh, you'll see something very, very different. And uh, I, I think we're, because this is still an extra new dimension in the way how we work, um, I, I think we still need to learn also how to deal with this in terms of the scientific quality that we produce and that we document. Yeah, I think that that, question goes to the researchers too, not just vendors, right? So mm -hmm. yeah, sure, the, you know, we require certain technologies coming from the market, but we also need to do a good job in our own labs. Uh, you know, Terry mentioned earlier, uh, putting the cells together in the right format and understanding whether you're changing the conditions around the cells and redox potential, et cetera, in advance of doing your assay is gonna make a big difference. So um, yeah, just wanted to add that. Um, here is another question. How could we apply cyclic aminofluorescent type of assays reliable to 3D models? Perhaps this is one for Terry. I guess I'm not sure what they mean by cyclic in this case. Just stick with aminofluorescent then, aminofluorescent assays. Uh, I'm not the expert in imaging, but um, aminofluorescence is going to you know, require penetration of the antibody if you're doing it in a, a live uh, approach versus, you know, something where you do a fixation and sectioning step. Uh, I will, I guess, point people to a recent review article that um, I co-authored with, with Joe Trask uh, on imaging and had to do with, you know, 3D assays, you know, plate-based and imaging assays. And I think, you know, maybe there may be some answers in that uh, recent publication. It was in in vitro cellular and developmental biology. I think it was January of uh, 2021. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, I'm not 1,000% sure what they mean there either, but I can imagine that you could start to do things like live blazer or halo tag or whatever on, on some of these different 3D models and it could be pretty cool. Okay. 
Well, here is one. I think we're still, we've got about eight minutes left. Um, probably for Tim, um, how clinically translational do you think 3D solid tumor models will become in the next two to five years? Oh, I love that question. I, I We're on the cusp. Uh, there's a lot of competition from a research perspective to, to push these things into clinically translational models. The NIH has really well-defined mechanisms to apply to a very large funded R01 uh, NCI, uh, National Cancer Institute funded mechanisms uh, to allow researchers like myself to apply to get funds to do it. Um, the biggest hurdle is that translational piece. I think a lot of folks, including myself, have been very successful in moving solid tumors through the drug discovery process, but to put that into humans it is the big thing to, to translate. And so because the funding's there and because there's a big initiative in, in the NCI, I'm sure we'll get there. Um, I'm sure large pharmas and other biotechs are also doing a really good job of pushing the boundaries and, and we'll take it to the clinical translation level soon as well. There's already been great examples in uh, bloodborne tumors, right? Where people are very successful in, in doing that um, large, large scale studies, you know, thousands of patients. So um, the, the big difficulty with solid tumors is really the population size. Okay. So, you know, doing a study on a dozen pancreas tumors is pretty, actually pretty big. <laughs> okay. Uh, to do it on thousands, like you might need, that's, that's actually a hurdle that I don't know how to solve. Um, but we'll have to get there. Same thing with brain tumors, right? Uh, patients are in critical need. It's a very transient system. So we have to move fast. Um, just have to align the horsepower that we need to do it. So I think it's going to happen. I really do. I'm very confident in the next two to five years, we'll have a lot better handle on these things. Okay, um, here is another one. Um, what are the criteria you use to quantify the 3D biological system before testing? Perhaps, uh, Terry, you wanna take a swing at this first? I was afraid you were gonna ask me to do that. Oh, you started to <laughs> speak. <laughs> Again, to quantify the 3D. Biological system before testing. Well, I think qualify. Um, Sorry, you, let's say qualify, not quantify. Ah, qualify. Well, that's a little that's easier different. to answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, if you have a, a a set of you know test compounds you can use uh, that you know will have no effect or will have the effect that you're looking for. Uh, in other words, if you choose appropriate controls, you can use that to sort of qualify or pre QC assay your mm -hmm. system to make sure that uh, it's responding in the way that you think it will. To add to that, one thing that people oftentimes overlook is something as simple as the incubation period. So, you know, should you incubate for, you know, 24, 48, you know, 96 hours, uh, because you can have gr great differences in the potency of chemicals, depending on how long they're exposed, you know, to the cells. So some of the things you can do uh, to address that are to use uh, kinetic real-time assays. There are some examples uh, like real-time glow or the DNA binding dye that you can use in real time uh, to record those values. And in fact, after you do that, you can actually sort of cherry pick and go to individual wells and do things like extract RNA to find out which signaling pathways are being activated by you know, various chemicals. And I think there, there are two phases of, uh, of qualification, right? One is when you develop a specific model uh, based on, on, on a certain donor, on a certain cell type. 
certain cook culture, certain media, then I think uh, at the end of the day, comparison across uh, or comparing the effects with known reference and tool compounds, I think is a great way of understanding the functionality of the system. But then there's also the, the qualification. And I think Tim alluded to that when you are producing a number of plates, right? For a larger um, uh, screening uh, campaign, you also need to make sure that you have a good quality spheroids, organoids in these plates. And, and uh, what, what we are typically doing here, very similar to what, what Tim mentioned, we're using optical QC. Uh, do we have a single tissue in every well? Does it have the right size? We're also looking at the shape because clearly we want a spheroid. And if we have a very elongated tissue because there you know, is maybe a fiber or something like that in the well that changes the morphology of the tissue, then we're going to take it out and replace it. Uh, because again, this might have an impact on the penetration speed and, and also imaging quality of these, of these tissues. So this is something that we run kind of consistently when we, are, when we are producing plates. And that goes then together with viability assays and with functional assays to make sure that kind of key um, hallmarks of the healthy or diseased tissue are properly reflected in this production batch. And I think that's something that you need to do always before you run a screen. Okay, well, it seems as we are coming to the end of the hour here. And so um, as we come to the end of the hour, I'd like to thank again, these 3D experts, Dr. Terry Risk, Dr. Tim Spicer, Dr. Dan Lichtenberg for being part of this insightful discussion. And also many thanks to all of you in the audience for listening today, asking some great questions. We really have tons of questions. Uh, we couldn't get to all of them, but um, I see someone even posted, I think, Terry's uh, paper <laughs> while we were having this discussion. So um, hopefully you can click on that and, and read it. But thank you again for everyone for joining. And uh, we look forward to our next roundtable event. We'll keep you posted when that will be and the topic. But on behalf of New Frontiers and 3D, thank you for joining. I wish you the best with your 3D research. Thanks a lot. Take care, everyone. Okay, Bye. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Thank you.